Everybody and welcome to the Pod on the Pendulum, the movie podcast covering all horror franchises, one movie and one episode at a time. I'm your host Mike Snooney, and this week we are wrapping up the holiday month with a look back at the 1990 follow-up to the smash hit Gremlins. That's right. This week we're going to watch Gremlins 2: The New Batch, the absolutely batshit crazy horror comedy from the genius Joe Dante. Uh, as always, I'm never here alone. Nobody wants 90 minutes of me just gibbering on my own. Uh, we have a pair of first-time guests on the pod. So first up, please welcome the director of the Salem Horror Festival, which just wrapped its fifth year with both an in-person and virtual program. Kay Lynch, how are we doing? Doing great. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. This is a joy. I think we've talked for a long time about having you on, and then it got kind of bananas when you're getting the festival ready. So, yes, so glad the, to have you on. This is the perfect time, so I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. And we also were joined by a writer whose work can be found over at Rue Morgue, at Dread Central, at Consequence of Sound, as well as Daily Grindhouse. More recently, she's taken on co-hosting duties with her friends over at the Losers Club, the preeminent Stephen King podcast that's out there. Please welcome Rachel Reeves to the show. Rachel, how are we doing? Oh, hi. I'm doing so great. I cannot thank you enough for asking me to be on here and talk about this absolutely glorious movie. <laughs> oh, we are! I'm so excited to have you both on because... This is a really, really fun movie to talk about, and it's not one I am actually super familiar with. So having two people on, they're like, you know, Kay, like, again, it's an audio show, so no one can see, but you have a giant stripe 
that is like sitting right behind you. It is terrifying and beautiful. <laughs> Rachel, you've already shown me Gizmo. And allegedly you have like a whole shelf full of them downstairs. So I do. I, I, I also have, have a, a giant gizmo tattoo, so I take him with really? me everywhere I go. <laughs> That's amazing. That what do is you do? amazing. What do you do in the shower? Get <laughs> yeah, I guess that's Excellent. true. <laughs> Excellent. So I do want to ask before we get into the movie, because this is a movie that I hadn't seen until last year when I finally ticked it off the box. And it's weird because like the first Gremlins movie as a kid, I loved it. Like it came out when I was nine. I saw that and Ghostbusters in the theater. I saw both of those movies on VHS and cable like a gazillion times. But this comes out in 1990. And I think by the time it came out, I was like angsty sophomore in high school. Just like, I'm not seeing this kid stuff. Um, And then like I didn't see it until I was in my mid 40s when I finally. And I'm like, this movie's a goddamn delight. How did I wait so long? Um but you both love this movie. So I wanted to ask both of you kind of like your history with the franchise and then this movie in particular, like when did you first come to it and how does it feel when you watch it now compared to like when you were younger kids? Sure. So I did not see this as a kid gremlins too. Anyway, I, my parents were kind of conservative as far as what they allowed us to Mm -hmm. watch. And my mom, uh, has always thought the gremlins are quote unquote creepy. So I never was allowed to watch it as a kid. So I didn't see the first gremlins till high school and just, I mean, fell in love with it. Of course Mm -hmm. it's amazing, but I didn't see gremlins too till several years later. And I kind of think that there's a real joy in seeing gremlins too as an adult, Mm. Because it's so bananas that, I mean, as a kid, I can see kids absolutely loving it. But I think as an adult, it's just the audacity of it. Yeah. It hits differently. And it's just so fun to realize how bananas it really is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I don't think I saw it till I was in my late 20s. But it's always just been one of my favorites. I love it. I love everything about it and I've seen it more times than I can count, but Mm -hmm. yet there's always something new to discover in Gremlins too. There's things I forget about. There's just scenes that it's like, wait, I never noticed that before or that little bit of dialogue you didn't quite hear before. So it's the gift that keeps on giving for sure. It is. And I use this phrase sometimes to describe other movies, but it really is like a live action comic book come to life like more so than any comic book movie i've ever seen i think like it is really like watching the funny pages spring to life totally okay how about yourself so the first gremlins was like a sleepover uh visiting family friend special like everyone had this on tape except for me Mm -hmm. so it was always a film that i saw at other people's houses Mm kind of like jaws it's a similar way of how i saw you know i saw that a zillion times or at least parts of it a zillion times and um so i i it took me a while actually to see it in its entirety because i would watch like the first 20 minutes or so and then by this time that the teacher um puts the candy bar under the desk and he gets attacked and killed <laughs> by the gremlins um i was like okay that's it that's enough for me <laughs> I would stop it there and i would leave the room 
um, because up until that point, the gremlins are really cute. They're the Mogwai. Mm-hmm. And at that, you know, um, once they transform, it was a little, uh, a little bit much for me at the time. So um, when I finally did watch it in its entirety, it was kind of this like rite of passage where I was like, oh, this is what the movie is actually about. And um, I think I'm a perfect mark for the Gremlins because this was the time, you know, the 80s was very much a Saturday morning cartoon culture mm-hmm. with action figures. Um, and so I loved anything that had to do with like mutations or like creatures. Um, and it was the, the first film was sort of the, the film that kind of got me hooked on the scares, sort of like the adrenaline that you get from watching something scary. Um, so it kind of led me along this path of like kid-friendly horror. Um, and then the sequel, uh, I think I saw it must have been like a birthday party kind of mm-hmm. thing, going to the movies. And um, again, it was just, I'm all about the creature design, um, the fact that they had so many different kinds of gremlins I was all about because I was a huge, huge Ninja Turtles fan. Uh, and, and really any franchise or any you know cartoon at that time, it was all about introducing like new weird looking characters that would mm-hmm. eventually become the toys. Right. So I think, I think that, that um, Gremlins 2 kind of like was placed squarely in that zone. Um, so I was, I was predisposed. And also all the media that kind of surrounded it. Like I played the video game um, and you know, the, it was this cultural phenomenon. So um, I, I really appreciated seeing these little guys everywhere. It is, yeah, you know, it's it's funny when you both said, like, okay, you just said, like, watching the first one, you kind of would have to leave the room after the um, high school teacher scene. Um, you know, it's funny, my wife and I rewatched the first one Thanksgiving night. We're like, all right, we're going to kick off Christmas season now with, like, Die Hard and Gremlins because we're super basic white folks. And we're like, that's, you know, start of the season, baby. Um, like, she vetoed It's a Wonderful Life because it was too long. She's like, no, we're going to, she's like, I want to hit the sack. Um, so we're watching Gremlins, and I'm looking at the high school teacher, and I'm just like, I'm like, why would you bring it to this guy? He's like, oh, I'll do some experiments. I'm like, dude, you teach freshman biology. Like, what sort of equipment do you have? Um, but you mentioned how it was too scary. And, Rachel, you said, you know, like, you had to watch it. You couldn't watch it as a small kid. Your parents kind of were super conservative about horror movies. And mine were the same way. Like, they were, like, up to the point where I turned 17, where it's, like, quote, unquote, not allowed to watch R-rated movies. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the second I turned 17, it was fine because it was okay to do so. Not that I didn't, but you'd have to sneak them. And I would love to conduct a poll of, like, parent or kids that, their parents didn't allow them to consume like horror as a kid. We're like, Nope, that's off limits. How many of us like turned out like not only to love horror, but are in somehow like working in the field in some way. Like, yeah, it's so subjective too. Like I still like I'm baffled by my parents' mm-hmm. logic because they would let me watch Terminator and yeah. Rambo and, Predator and like mm-hmm. anything that had Schwarzenegger, Stallone, like Commando, like these were common films in mm-hmm. my house. And I'm like, how is that any better than Gremlins? Right. Like these movies are far more violent and terrifying. <laughs> that is very bizarre, right there. Yes, that is yes, a very no, bizarre. 
it's that it's it's uh it's my mom and dad that's mixed my dad would mm-hmm. let us watch those and my mom would be like oh no gremlins those are gross right. <laughs> i know we could watch the three stooges and there's very little that is more violent than the three stooges i mean it is you know just it's all pure... subjective what is it yeah. subjective relative morality <laughs> Kind of I feel like we are the more permissive parents and I feel like my daughter is rebelling by being kind of like preppy, you know, she's like, everything matches and her sweaters are nice. And I'm like, you need to go listen to the dead Kennedys and wear a Ramones t-shirt. She's like, no, dad, I won't. I want these expensive boots. Just so that's my hell. Anyway, um, <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the uh, making of this movie, because this is a movie that Joe, like nobody aside from like the um, basically the accounting department at Warner Brothers wanted to make, you know, the first movie, Warner Brothers doesn't expect a lot from it. Like, "Ah, it'll be a nice little release, but not a big deal. And it goes on to like make one hundred and fifty million at the box office in 1984 dollars like it's basically it's marvel money but then on top of that like the movie itself you get all the marketing like all the toys the video games the t-shirts the lunch boxes like it's almost like a star wars in terms of its in terms of like how much money this thing makes after the fact so warner brothers is desperate to make another one like please we need to make make more of these. And Joe Dante's like, I'm good. He's like, I really want to do my own thing. Like it's a really good self-contained story. Like I, I don't want to do this. So there's a quote from Dante here in the Chicago reader from 2012, talking about why he did the movie. So it says after, after several years of trying to figure out how to make a sequel to this movie that really didn't need a sequel, my producer, Mike Finnell and I were convinced to come back. We decided to do a movie that not only made fun of the first movie and all those horror movie tropes, but got away with some social satire as well. So he's like, if I can kind of poke fun at myself a little bit and poke fun at the machine, I will do this. Um, And he also knew like when he made the first movie, it was really hard to work with all the puppets. It was really hard to work with that many kind of animatronics and puppeteers and, and make it come to life. You know, now you could do it as CGI and it wouldn't look as good or be as memorable, but it would be a lot easier. Um, and Dante's also like looking at his friend Spielberg, who doesn't make a sequel to Jaws. He turns it down and resists the temptation to make a sequel to E.T. And he's like, I should follow that route. Like the sequels are never as good. But he also comes to realize he's like, I'm I'm very good at what I do, but I'm not Steven Spielberg. So I can't be quite as picky. So he gains assurances from Warner Brothers. Like, all right, like, what do you want the movie to be? And they're like, we don't care. Just make sure that Billy's in it. Make sure Kate's in it. Put in Gizmo and put in the Gremlins. And we will leave you alone. You can do whatever you want. And he said, I've never had that before. I've never had it since. How do you say no? You know, and he's like, I am going to make a movie that proves we didn't need to make a movie is basically. Um and Rachel, your site, Consequence uh, of Sound, has like a really incredible oral history of the making of Gremlins 2 up. I will put it here in the show notes for our listeners. But um, rather than have me like go in for 20, 30 minutes in the making of it, I would say go and read this article. Um, you know, so if, 
Yeah, it's fantastic. If you are anti-reading, you can DM me and for like a few bucks, I will, you know, <laughs> read it to you over Zoom while you're tucked in at night. Like I'll just charge for it and I'll even do voices for the different people involved in it. If that's what it takes. So they get um, they get the assurances they can do whatever. And the other thing that I think makes this movie so great is he gets Rick Baker to come on as well and design it. And Rick Baker didn't want to do it because he was like, I'm just copying somebody else's work. Like these things, everybody already knows what they look like. I don't, I want to make my own thing. And when Dante says like, okay, go at it, do whatever you want. Like you can do that. He's like, all right, I'll give this a whirl. I think like Rick Baker creating all these different gremlins um, is really what makes this movie work. I just can't imagine getting that kind of like creative blank check to just like, here you go, no. gigantic pile of money, do whatever you want. Like, yeah, it makes sense that Joe Dante is like, I can't say no to this. Like mm-hmm. who, what creator in their right mind would ever say no to this? But I do love that they're like, okay, well, we're going to do whatever we want. And they yeah. did. And I think that's so beautiful. <laughs> it's we're living in this really bizarre time period where like there's these and you get like I, I'm blanking on the director of the it's Eternals right now and I'm, I'm drawing a blank so I'm terrible with names but she's an Oscar winning director and you bring her on to do a Marvel movie and then you put all these creative shackles on her yeah. and say like this is what your movie can't be and it's like why why and we see this happen with franchise filmmaking like we want to get the best names possible to make them but we want to strip away everything that makes them so good at what they do and just fit into this kind of like tight little box. And it gets kind of gets boring. It's it's sad. Like you see it a lot of time, like you see a lot of indie filmmakers like really get a splash or make a name for themselves with their own creative projects and they get the attention of these bigger studios. So the bigger studios want that talent, but at the same time, like don't support it by giving them the trust and the freedom to really like do what made them so appealing in the first place. So when you see studios actually do that, you know, whether it's in the past or the present, it's really kind of a cool thing to see because you learn so much about the director and the writers by giving them the opportunity to do what, you know, people love about them in the first place. Yeah, in some ways, like I I really don't want to hear another director talk about marvel movies but at the same time i feel like joe dante would actually be a perfect director for the universe um because he has always gotten away with making a a seemingly authentic version of um you know like hollywood pop entertainment while embedding, you know, these subversive, in some cases, radical ideas that sort of undermine the entire project, but it works on both levels. I agree. And I I feel like with Joe Dante, you can watch his body of work. Like you can watch The Howling, you can watch the two Gremlins movies, Inner Space, The Burbs, and you just watch those movies uh spot include small soldiers in there you get a really good idea of who he is mm-hmm. like as a person because i think like very similar themes tend to pop up and a very specific and sly sense of humor tends to pop up throughout all of his movies like you get a really good idea like if you were to meet him and sit down 
with him, you would get a pretty good idea of who he is as a person just from watching his work because he brings so much of it into his movies. And I think that's a really great thing. Yeah, he he is so fascinating because he's he's able to work on two fronts at the same exact time. And so the fact that he had kind of come about with Spielberg, um, you know, and Spielberg was his whole body of work is about sort of nostalgia and looking back and how great everything is in childhood as this precious, um, you know, time. Um, and, and Joe definitely has that. He definitely has um, an affection for the past and an affection for the magic of movies. But he also has this like deep, dark-rooted cynicism for <laughs> for what they represent or you know how they could be interpreted um and so i i, I kind of find that his um you know partnership and his working relationship with spielberg and comparing their output is really interesting i do think that you mentioned his cynicism but what i love about dante's cynicism is it's not he's aware of it but he's not it's not like a bitter cynicism. Like yeah. he's not like, I don't know. Sometimes when people are embedding their, you know, their films with like social commentary can come off a little bitter or aggressive almost. But I love how Joe Dante's is like, it's there, but he also is, you know, he doesn't let it define him or like eat away at his soul. He's just like putting it out there. Like, yeah, this exists and I'm going to just present it for the absolute absurdity that it is. But mm -hmm. it's, still maintains like a weird sense of fun about it. And that's something I love about all of his films. And it definitely is just cranked up to 11 in this one, for sure. Right. Well, and uh, and um, uh, Clamp is a perfect example of that because he was intended to be the villain. And in, in some ways he kind of is, but he is so earnest and enthusiastic about everything that it's kind of hard to hate him. And, and in some ways, I feel like a lot of the social commentary that is very prevalent in Gremlins 2 is almost undermined by how earnest everything is because it's like making a, a pretty pointed um, reflection of like mass media um, and uh, but at the end, that at the end of the day, it's, everything goes back to the status quo. You know, all the bad things that happened are like, well, we fixed it, and everyone's friends now. <laughs> no, you're right. Everybody gets like a promotion. They get exactly what they want at the end, and nobody really pays any real consequences for anything they've done. I like to describe his cynicism and compare it to. When I was growing up, my grandfather used to throw light bulbs at my cousin and I. He would just like, yeah, and call us goddamn idiots and throw light bulbs at us chasing us around the yard. And he would also, when we were really young, be like, hey, someone left money on the table. Go take it when we go to restaurants and have us stealing tips as no. a. Yes. Oh my so God. <laughs> when you look back on that, like that's really horrible, um, terrible things to do. But you can laugh at it like you, it's one of those things you can like, all right, that's also kind of hilarious. And I kind of feel like that's Dante's like cynicism, like these things are really bad. But through a certain lens, they're funny as shit, too. And <laughs> that's just me outing my grandfathers are really. 
terrible a human character. Being. He's he a was, character, right? He was well, yeah, he was one of those. So he was Futterman, like my da- grandfather, because he was a World War II vet. Like he was definitely Futterman, um, without like Dick Miller's nice edges around him. Like, um, yeah. A lot more profanity around my grandfather. I wanted a lot of choice words. But anyway, the movie itself. All right. We start off. We, we, we start where we began the first movie. We're back in the shop. We have grandfather there. Uh, and he has Gizmo in his little cage. I feel so bad for Gizmo because he just lives in this cage in this little shop. And like, again, the grandfather's big his biggest gripe is that Gizmo likes to watch TV. Like what the hell else is he supposed to do with his time? You know, just mm-hmm. felt bad for him. Like at the end of gremlins, when the grandfather shows up and he's like, the thing he is most angry about isn't that the town is on fire. It isn't that like people are dead and there's not like millions of dollars of destruction. And like these small businesses will never be able to, get back from it he's super angry that like gizmo is watching like the a-team just kind of chilling out and watching he's like how dare you sir you know it's just why does the grandfather hate television so much is my question i i don't know it's just like my parents that moral relativism you know (laughs) like it doesn't really make sense like oh at this one hand you're allowing this yeah you're keeping him in a cage but you're bothered by the fact that he's watching tv like i'm not sure those things necessarily align it's a good question and and it's interesting because joe of course is um a student of cinema and Mm -hmm. tv he's he has an encyclopedic knowledge Mm -hmm. of pop culture and so it's it, it is interesting to try to like extrapolate what is what is the comment that is being being made there and that i think it just may be part of that duality where he can acknowledge that maybe it's not the best for our intellectual right. development to always be watching mm-hmm. tv but at the same time like with the destruction of the city why you know it's almost like he's like well i warned them these yeah, like totally. americans like brought it upon themselves they just follow mm-hmm. the rules now if uh, if um, Gizmo starts watching all this television and starts to think like these dumb Americans, mm-hmm. then, you know, then we'll have, you know, these problems will be even more so. Yeah. It's also just like the power, I think, yeah, the power that Gizmo contains. I mean, obviously the power of destruction that he contains. It's kind of interesting, you know, that this, this man keeps him caged up because it's like the world can't, the world can't control this like Mm -hmm. he tried and obviously they failed so like i'm aware of gizmo i'm aware of what the potential that lies within him is and yeah i'm just not gonna let him be a part of this world because they clearly can't handle him (laughs) but there's never any sort of you know like when the grandfather dies like gizmo's left to his own devices there's never any sort of like chain of command like we talk about the nuclear football at times like yeah. there's nothing in place where when the grandfather passes away that like okay you're the next person you know and obviously the grandson probably wasn't the best person to take him over because he would just sell him to the highest bidder he's like a couple <laughs> yeah. hundred bucks you know I could buy myself a Super NES or a, a Sega Genesis with what, you know, Gizmo would go for in the market. I'm all for it. Um, 
it, it's just it's weird I, I guess it's like you know i don't want to nitpick the movie it's a kid's movie it's meant to have fun and if like their grandfather was super responsible it would be a very short movie at that point yeah it was so. like we wouldn't have the movie so um well, you first i think came. i i see i see gremlins the franchise as a whole as a metaphor for capitalism mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. in a way i think gizmo represents you know, it's like, oh, if in small doses, or if we were able to control capitalism and mm-hmm. limit it, then it would be cute and attractive and alluring. And, um, but I think that's what the, the series ultimately says is that if you can't, it's impo- yeah. like even you, it's impossible to put limits to capitalism because it's inherently designed to just keep growing and consuming. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's, so I think it's part of, part of um gizmo's fate (laughs) to be to have that have that power um and and almost be destined to grow out of control you can have the best intentions but there's just simply no containing something will happen yeah Mm -hmm. we must put them on suction cups in car windows (laughs) yes we must there was a proposed ending to this movie where like randall peltzer was going to show up at the end with his latest invention and it was going to be like a waterproof suit for the mogwai which at that point would have said like now he can never get wet again which would have been kind of cute um you know but they decided like eh, we're probably never going to use it so why even bother filming it but that would have been and also given how his inventions tended to go like i could see it having very horrific unintended consequences (laughs) um So um, I do like even before the movie starts, you get, you know, the inversion of Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck. And it kind of it's a statement of intention right away where Bugs is pretty calm, cool and collected and kind of always in control of a situation like there might be chaos, but he's orchestrating it like Daffy Duck can do no right. Uh So, you know, right away, like, okay, this one is going to go off the rails in really fabulous ways. And it's just like a very, and yeah, and and Dante was actually able to get like Chuck Jones to come out of retirement and do this segment um, for the movie, which I thought was like really, really great. Um, Kay, you were talking about Clamp as a villain uh, or not quite a villain in this movie, like played by John Glover. Um, he's kind of an amalgamation of both Ted Turner and Donald Trump back when we could look at Donald Trump and say like, oh, he's like an egomaniac and a moron, but essentially he's very harmless. Like what's the worst he can do? Um, what do we, like, is, what do we think of, of Glover's presentation here? Cause I do love that there's really no villain, in this movie and he's just like so boyishly enthusiastic about everything that you kind of root for him in a lot of ways even though you're like all of your ideas are bad ideas but you know and he's kind of a fascist where like you can't have a plant or anything from your hometown in your office but he's so gosh darn nice about everything you don't mind so much yeah, in a lot of ways, actually, Robert Picardo is probably the bigger villain mm-hmm. um, because he's the one, he's the enforcer. Yep. <laughs> and that'll, that allows Daniel Glamp to 
sort of be this, you know, this lovable, well, I'm sure his employees don't find him lovable. <laughs> he's, he's, he's overbearing mm-hmm. in his policies and um, his, the, the office culture is toxic. Um, but I think that he also represents that sort of optimism that we have. Like if you look at what, what we thought the internet would bring to us all, all mm-hmm. the great and positive things that the internet represented. Um, you know, it's gonna, technology is gonna say, you know, uh, pave the way for a brighter tomorrow. Um, you know, Disney uh, has a lot of this too. You go to Epcot, you know, it's a great big, beautiful mm-hmm. tomorrow. Um, so I think in a lot of ways he represents, uh, you know, he's another sort of conflicting <laughs> um, uh, bag of themes in the sense that he represents the optimism of what all this technology and innovation could represent, but he's also a victim of reality of like what what can happen when you bring that to market demands and um, you know te- technological obsolescence and how you know in a lot of ways this technology is designed to fail. Um, because otherwise, if we were able to fix everything, then we wouldn't need any more of it. Right. Um, so, so I, you know, I, I think that um, he doesn't play it like a villain, um, but, in, but in, in many ways, he's still advancing a villainous agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just like Gizmo, it's so alluring. Um, and the promise of it is so attractive that um you know bad things still inevitably unfold right it's it's such an interesting portrayal of power and wealth too i think it's such like a yeah just like kay was saying like an earnest portrayal of that because yeah his ideas are sometimes terrible and like he does have a good heart it seems like even though his ideas come off it's like yeah maybe you shouldn't just just go into chinatown and build a new chinatown like maybe that's not your place to do that but at the same time, he's in this position of power and has the money that nobody really says no to him. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's kind of I got thinking about it. I was like, he's kind of like Elon Musk, like without the ego, mm-hmm. like some of the things he's doing. It's like maybe that's not how you should spend a eight billion dollars. Mm-hmm. But nobody's saying no to him because right. they like he's just in this weird place of wealth and power. So it's. But I love the way that it's portrayed here because there's not much to hate about him. He's also like a like a he's mentioned like a comic book. He's a very comic book like villain. I think he's mm-hmm. got like this Gotham Tower office, you know, in this secret escape route under the plant. Yep. But yeah, without any of kind of the, the villainous intent. But that office kills me every time. It's so great. Yeah. yeah. And I love how he's like, we're going to throw a spontaneous parade in Chinatown because <laughs> so because everyone is really happy with everything I'm doing there. It's like that is a thing you can do, I guess, if you have that much money. And then, yeah, like, are you I, sure they love yeah. what you're doing yeah. there? Like, who's telling like, you that? It's like, is this North Korea? What's going on? Like, <laughs> and, I, and I love at the end of the movie when he sees like Billy's sketch of like Kingston Falls and he's like, oh, we're going to like mass produce this. Like, all of a sudden, you can kind of like, ma- it, it, like, if you mass produce all these small towns, like, it's not going to suck all the charm out of it immediately. And it's just. That did hit differently. I will say this time, because I haven't watched this, you know, mm-hmm. at least 
maybe two years. It hasn't been a crazy long time. Mm-hmm. But the fact that like it's basically talking about like this exodus out of the cities, like everybody mm-hmm. wants to get away and get out of in like a suburban life. And it's like that's kind of what happened last year. Like yeah. after COVID, it's like everybody like started fleeing the cities. Mm-hmm. But then you move to the small towns. And like I live in a town where it's like the housing market is insane right now. Yes. And I know we're not alone, but it's kind of like you think it's going to be one thing and it actually just brings you know different a uh, different set of problems so no. i thought that was i mean talk about you know jonte joe dante having a you know looking forward as well as back it's no. you know wild how things like that still resonate and there's a reading of gremlins as term in terms of like white flight and what happens when quote unquote others like invade the suburbs and like the havoc that can wreak that I don't think was intentional on the part mm-hmm. of like writer Chris Columbus or Joe Dante. Um, but there's a lot of articles that like talk about that, like, oh, it's like a scare tactic, like it's a horror movie for like white suburban folks that left the city, especially coming like probably I know in maybe like 10 years after like the busing. Uh, the busing crisis in Boston where like kids were like black students specifically bused to better schools and like Boston freaked out over it and rioted over it. Like it was really scary time in the late seventies when that happened. Um, And I know like for us or we've slowly migrated, like we used to live in the heart of like Boston and over the past like 15 years of like, we keep making our way like a little bit more out of the city, a little bit more out to the point where like now like deer and wild turkey roam through our yard at any given moment and it's nice and quiet um but boring too sometimes like yeah i don't know if you can kind of you can't fake that kind of level of boring sometimes i think <laughs> yeah I, you, I've... you first case sorry oh no i was gonna say yeah i i I've, I've i think a lot about sort of like the racial conversation about mm-hmm. these films and try to unpack that and try to think of like okay what what is going on here and i think that um for me my interpretation is that it is somewhat intentional but i think that what um i mean who knows what dante's intention was but for me it's almost like he is satirizing the xenophobic perspective of that and through like futterman so i in some ways i think he's making fun of how silly it is to you know this the fear the irrational fear that people have of outsiders um by almost delivering the cartoonish vision of their their fears come to life Mm -hmm. um because there's also there's like it's not even it's not just the fear of the other as a being coming into the community but it's also the technology the um the different values um you know like with the the cold war and um it's this sort of like fear of anything changing yeah and futterman's i could be wrong but it seems like futterman's hard edges from the first movie are completely sanded off in this one um if i remember because i've watched it a few times this week just getting ready for the show like i don't remember futterman having like his xenophobic rants that he had in the first movie where like every time he would come on screen he would be like oh these foreign cars don't work or oh foreigners are trying to always break our stuff 
I don't remember that really happening in this movie at all. Like he's just much more kind of like a more benevolent figure in this movie. And I don't think you're ever supposed to dislike Futterman in the first movie. Like he's not a villain in that movie either. Um, but it, it seemed like a lot of those diatribes, like they were definitely like been removed by the time this movie came around. Well, they, uh, they like that... cut it short. I think that, you know, he starts to go on one and, and then mm-hmm. his wife is like, all right, stop it. You know, the doctor yeah. said like, calm down <laughs> and just, it's, but I love that. Cause it also shows that like, he's like working on it, you know, yeah. like he's, he's working on getting past these feelings, and mm-hmm. like trying to be yeah. a healthier, better person. Yeah. Maybe that's, maybe that's putting yeah. too much on it, but it's like, he does it's like a nod to the previous Futterman and then they just kind of like cut it off and like mm-hmm. move on. <laughs> no. It's also like globalization too, because he's like, he lived in the past, lived in a small community. Now he's in the big city, the mm-hmm. sort of yeah. center of cultural production. He's kind of has a little more experience. He knows he's not, you know, everyone in the world doesn't look or think like him. And so, you know, in some ways, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, yeah. he's, you know, he, as he learns more about the world, he, he expands his worldview along yeah. with it. And that's, that's a good point, too. Like, he's out there a lot more. And it's how long are we supposed to, because they, they mention like, oh, you know, like getting almost killed by the gremlins, like that will kind of mess you up. Like, but it seems like there's a pretty big time jump in this movie. I mean, I know it's like six years after the first one came out, but I don't think it's meant to be like six years later per se, but there is like a jump in time of at least a couple years, right? So yeah. are, we, are we assuming that Futterman was maybe like hospitalized for a couple years after? I don't know if he's hospitalized, but, it, but there is a time jump for mm-hmm. sure. But I never thought about how long. It's good. But but what? And I'm I'm also wondering because if he was treated for some level of psychosis, like other people in the town saw this, so is there just like some like Arkham Asylum that now houses all the residents of like just some <laughs> dark shit? Is that why you know Randall and Mom are not in this movie? Like, are they still? Anyway, dark thoughts. Um, Kay, I do love that you mentioned like kind of like smart technology because this building is very much like the the, uh, the um, sprinkler systems and the lighting and the doors and like traveling from floor to floor is all automated. And as someone who before becoming a therapist spent like 15 years designing these kinds of systems for people and realizing they never work like they're supposed to. Um And I know that like, you know, like trying to work my lights by the voice works some of the time if I remember the right words, but I'm still getting up more times than not and flipping a switch and then getting a really smug wolf look from my wife who's like, yep, that's how you do it. Uh, She hates technology. Um, I love that they kind of dive into this like world 30 years before it become like an everyday thing. Oh, yeah. I think about this all the time. How like... You know, technology is supposed to make our lives better, but then in so many ways, it's like, but does it? But it mm. does, but it also does it. I don't know. Even if you think about like, I was just thinking the other day about watching television, how, mm-hmm. you know, when we were, you know, when we were all growing up, 
commercials were just a part of life and I didn't find them that annoying. It's just mm -hmm. like, this is how it is. There's commercials in TV shows. But now it's like a commercial pops up on Spotify or something or Tubi. And I'm just like, annoyed. oh my God, this is the most annoying thing mm -hmm. in the whole world. And like, yeah. it bothers me so much. And it's so funny because it's like, that's not how it used to be. It's right. only annoying now because we've, you know, are allowed to you know go past these or technologies advanced where we can fast forward so i don't know it's very strange yeah <laughs> it's like the paradox it's... of options having op like the more aware you are of there being other options or other experiences the more um critical we become of the ones that we are immediately faced with yeah yeah and even like just the power of options alone like how many times have you like scroll through shutter or netflix or prime and been like i can't find anything to watch and there's yeah. literally hundreds of thousands of movies and you're just paralyzed <laughs> and then after 90 minutes you're like fuck it i'm just going to bed like yeah. i didn't watch anything yeah. i just choice paralysis is real it's awful. whereas mm -hmm. like i know we've all gone to a, like a video store and have memories mm -hmm. of like renting a vhs and it's like you're watching mm -hmm. that movie because yeah. that's all you that's have it. yeah <laughs> And I don't know, like I would have my dad, like you have one more minute to pick something or else we're leaving with nothing. And then yeah. you just like in a hurry, grab something really quick. And, you know, that's how you get introduced to Salo, 120 days of Salo. <laughs> oh my God. No, so like, whoops. So, um, I used all to right, be, let... um, I was a director of marketing for a gay mm -hmm. dating, um, company. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was um, the, the company was Manhunt and Jack and Jack is kind of like Grinder, And essentially, and it's like a lot of dating apps now. It's just like the grid of faces or torsos. Mm -hmm. um, and in a lot of ways, when I was working there, I'm like, we're selling jam, like jars mm -hmm. of jam or, you know, it's like there's, um, you know, we don't need 50 different brands and flavors but here we are or toothpaste or anything and mm -hmm. um i i became very cynical of what i was doing yeah. as i started thinking more and more about that of being like oh yeah the the people are the product um, yeah. that we're selling here absolutely so let's now talk about the gremlins and the mogwai themselves so i think one of the best parts of this movie is as much as i love the first movie and i do love it there's not a lot of diversity in the gremlins. Like you have Stripe and then you have all the other ones and there might be little moments here or there, but they're pretty much like they're all the same here. You have, and I think adding the science lab in and allowing them to mutate was such a wonderful touch. And then allowing Rick Baker again to do just like whatever he wanted to make his own personal touch on it. It lets the movie do some wild stuff. And I just want to say that like, I don't know what the name of this Mogwai is, but the really goofy one with the eyes that were rolling around in his head and like he just existed to break shit and be as chaotic as possible and laugh like he is my favorite thing in both of these movies. Like I love him and wish he didn't become a gremlin like if that if, if there was like a buddy movie with him and Gizmo where he was Gizmo's like super annoying sidekick. I would watch a hundred of those movies. Like he's so much fun. That, what are, what are uh, your favorites from this movie? Like what stood out to you? I just, okay. So th this is the aspect of the movie. I think that doesn't get enough credit mm -hmm. is 
the just the actual gremlins themselves not only because it's was just pure genius for merchandising Mm -hmm. because you think about when the first one came out it's like there was yeah there was stripe but like most of the merchandise was just gizmo yeah and then with this one by diversifying and having all these crazy gremlins your the doors are open for merchandising you can have all these different little toys and so i think that that's genius i mean personally i love the bat gremlin Mm -hmm. and i love i mean the spider gremlin is terrifying yeah (laughs) um and then just the fact that like the innovation that went into these gremlins I mean, this is the first time I think Joe Dante, there was a quote by him somewhere was saying like the hardest part about this movie was getting Gizmo to dance. Yep. Like just the actual physical motions that Gizmo went through and the rest of the gremlins went through was just a feat of puppetry and post work and stuff that they didn't do in the first one. And then by like having those simple little scenes, like where he's running down the street after, you know, the old man dies. And then when he's dancing, that sets up the fact that he can go full John Rambo later in the film. But those motions and what he's doing and the way that they pulled those off is just like astounding. Like Mm -hmm. kudos to Rick Baker for being creative and just like making these actual puppets evolve, you know, yeah, that, yeah, there's a vegetable gremlin. So there's that evolution, but actually like from a creative standpoint, the way that these gremlins evolve too, is just movie magic. And I don't think enough credit gets given to them for that. Especially when he's running in the city. I I just love his little, his little feet, his little. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I read that in the, when he's dancing, I forgot what the song is actually in the movie, but they initially wanted Billy Idol dancing with myself, but they couldn't afford it, um, which I, I love. I would have loved. I wonder if someone on YouTube has this kind of... Oh, probably. <laughs> now you love... can do it. You can mash yeah. it up. But yeah, they get Fats Domino instead because mm-hmm. it had the same right. beat. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like the dance scene in Friday the 14th, the final chapter with Crispin Glover. I think it's when they played it on set was back in black. Oh. Which makes a lot more sense when you watch it because of the way that the, the herky jerky motions yeah. of it. But then yeah, they couldn't get the rights to the song, so you get that, that is literally brilliant. one of my favorite scenes in oh, all of, of horror movie it history. Like Crispin Glover dance, like oh my god, it absolutely is. So um, yeah, I love you know I love like the bat gremlin, and I love that you have like the bat symbol like perfectly through it. You have lightning gremlin. Um, like, you know, Greta, the sexy gremlin that fucks, just basically give me all of that. And there's more person. There's one that looks like Al Capone. I mean, it's really wonderful. Like, there's just such like a, a, a wonderful design. And again, could you do this now? Like, if there's ever another Gremlins movie, chances are it'll be CGI, right? I mean, that's kind of like it'd be, yeah, which, you know, having and i think dante even talks about this in the consequence interview like the actors like having these puppets to react against as opposed to like someone holding a stick you get so much more of like genuine reactions from this and i also just love the idea of christopher lee who i think we all love christopher Mm -hmm. lee in this movie with all of these puppets just having to react to like gizmo and having to react to these gremlins and apparently I found this little kind of quote here when Dante convinced Christopher Lee to be in the movie. 
he Lee wanted to play it really silly. He wanted to be goofy. He wanted to be kind of have it look like fearless vampire killers, like really over the top. And Dante had to like pull him aside and be like, look, I really want Christopher Lee. I don't want a funny mustache madman. I want someone who is very cold. And in Lee, to his credit, he could have easily said, well, this is what I want to do. I'm Christopher Lee and you're not. Um, he's like, okay, we can, he, we can, we can do that. Has Christopher Lee ever been silly in a movie? I can't think of a time where he's ever been not himself. Like yeah. he has roles where the situation is goofy, but I've never seen him kind of like cut loose in a comedic way. I haven't either. Not saying that it doesn't exist, but yeah, I'm not familiar with anything. Mm. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, he's always been very open about like having like feeling a little bitter about being typecast as, mm-hmm. you know, that Dracula character for yeah. so long, especially like, you know, before Lord of the Rings and all that. Yeah. But it it would make sense to me why he would be like, no, please just let me do something different. <laughs> sure. But I'm, I'm grateful that he agreed to do it anyways and maybe saw that like his character didn't need to be so silly because mm-hmm. everything happening around him. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. It's a way to ground what's happening because if every, I mean, aside from Billy, um, you know, Billy in a lot of ways is the straight man. You know, yeah. it, it's, it, you kind of need that juxtaposition so that the crazy things can work because at least something's grounded in reality. And unfortunately, it, I think it makes Billy's character extremely boring yeah um uh which but it still serves a function um to christopher lee's credit he's doing you know essentially the same thing but he's not boring he he's, no. yeah. he has a commanding presence mm-hmm. um and and it really works you know they could have had two therapists and a plastic surgeon but <laughs> <laughs> right should have been great um well that um leads me to talk about some of the ways that this movie really messes with like studio expectations and audience expectations and like the absolute um, mayhem that goes on with this movie. What do we think of like the scene where the movie pokes fun at the rules of the gremlins, which, you know, I think in our first episode, we talk a little bit about how, arbitrary these rules really seem and how like and my wife even pointed out she's like why is this gremlin drinking beer like if it's drinking (laughs) beer can't it then become so we had this long discussion about well maybe it's water and like once you change it whether with carbonation or (laughs) add hops and barley maybe at that point it changes like the chemical balance of it enough where it doesn't matter but it's a really good point um what do we think of the how this movie kind of pokes fun at the rules it established in the first one? I love it. I love how they execute it too. Like, you know, they're it's addressing the elephant in the room mm-hmm. and in a really humorous, self-aware way. But then the a gremlin bursts out of the control panel and like mm-hmm. bites that lady's arm. So yeah. it's like it doesn't matter is basically what they're saying. Like, just get over it and have mm-hmm. fun. Like, exactly. who gives a fuck? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I love how in some ways it's like the Leonard Martin um, bit where it's yeah. like, all right, you know, like it's almost like his revenge on all the people who have wanted to have this conversation or all the interviews he probably had to give when people have asked. It's like, oh, but we're going to make sure that that person gets Ian. <laughs> yeah. Yep. 
And Leonard Maltin, like, I think the review he reads might be from his actual review. Like, he did not like the first Gremlins movie. And kudos to him for, like, saying, having enough kind of humor about himself to be like, sure, I'll come on to this movie. And Dante, too, for, you know, for being Mm -hmm. like, no, I want you to to read, say, your Mm -hmm. actual review. Yeah. Uh, and I love how it like it, it definitely threw me off. I'm like, wait a minute, there's a movie called Gremlins about the Gremlins in a movie, the movie Gremlins too. Like it wasn't it was even like more of a mind fuck than watching Halloween three and seeing the commercial for Halloween when um they're in the bar. I'm like it blew my mind a little bit. I'm kind of like, what is going on here? Um I love all of the little in jokes in the movie. Like the, there's one bit where they're like the owner of like such and such a car, like, please come to the garage. It's old and dirty. (laughs) It's perfect. Or how it pokes fun at like the frozen yogurt craze of the eighties and nineties where the mom is like, I'm sorry, my cat keeps trying to like rest on my computer. He's very old. (laughs) And you have your own little very, gremlin. Yeah, he's right here. He's very old, and oh, now you're gonna hide. He's very friendly, but he has a habit of like shutting my computer off when we're recording. <laughs> yeah, he has his own little. He's his own little gremlin. He's a good boy. Um, but you're looking at this like quote unquote health food, this frozen yogurt, which is like yogurt laden with sugar and chemicals, and like they're like the toppings are like Reese's pieces. And they're like, I thought this was health food. And you're like, that's brilliant. Like, that's just yeah. like that. Okay. So that shit. scene, that exact mm-hmm. scene you're talking about, there's a couple of things I love about that. Well, mm-hmm. number one, those two actresses that are in there. I mean, they're both like, they're both in Seinfeld. There's a lot of Seinfeld. Like there's a lot of like New York actors in this movie that you'll see. Like, I love the cameos, but there's right then. And also is Jerry Goldsmith, the composer. He does a little cameo in there too. And like, it's where there's a rat or I don't know what he says, but it's like, how often do you get a composer cameo? And I, lo- so I love that they included Jerry Goldsmith and, um, oh, you're talking about, and it's also just like one of those throwaway scenes. Okay. So there's, there's a scene that I love that just like, I think sums up this whole movie. It's so there it's when like, it's just like a hallway shot, but there's like a goat with a gremlin riding on it and then a camel and like a cow. And then these dogs like legitimately chasing this camel, like about to get trampled. And then who's behind him? Oh, Christopher Lee. And it's just like this little throwaway scene, but it's just like embodies the complete bananas like what is happening like you could never do this a camel like this poor dog is legitimately about to get stepped on they i was reading some of the behind the scenes stuff and they say like the monkeys that were in the cages like when they were coached to come out they were so scared of the gremlins that they refused (laughs) to come out of their cage they had to be like really coaxed out by their trainers and they were like absolutely that wouldn't happen with cgi no (laughs) Yeah, and we'd be poorer for it because, you know, what is better than scaring monkeys? Um, <laughs> really, what else? Um, I don't I love, often... I love the U-Haul. I love the U-Haul is on the second floor. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, and didn't they like they really built this place? Like I thought I heard like in a like an interview or a commentary or something like this mall was like the set is insane. Like they actually built all these stores and like furnished these stores so you could like walk around it like a functioning mall and like these stores would be filled with product and just I mean, that just speaks to that $50 million budget. Like, you see that budget. Like, they spent that budget. Oh, yeah. Every penny. They talked about possibly importing, like, that set to be used on, like, scenes from a mall afterwards. Because it looked, like, Mm. right down to, I think, the cash registers being functional. Um, Like, that level of detail with it. Um, it, Because it looks cool. Like, it it looks like the kind of place, like, is someone who grew up in the 80s and 90s, like, yep, that's exactly where we would have spent, like, many a Friday night, like, wandering around a place like that. Like, it was insane how good that looked. It is funny, too. Like, the whole movie, like, is an indictment of, or, you know, a comment on, like, capitalism and commercialization and the, the excess of the 80s and everything. And then you, like, see this 50 million dollar movie with like they just spend all this movie on a fake you know mall it's like wait a minute yeah. but i think that's all what makes it so circle. great because the best satires are actually good examples of what they're making fun of so it's like... totally <laughs> and dante says that that was kind of his point of doing it like that like it, he says that like and, and maybe part, you know, maybe if the movie, because it wasn't successful compared to the first, like it doesn't make its budget back. Um, it makes like 40 million compared to the first one, which made like, a you know, four times that on a quarter of the budget. Um, and I think I think the reason it didn't make its money back is more because people like myself who aged out of it. And it was so long between the first movie, two movies that like it kind of just like people aged out of it a bit. Um, otherwise, I do think if this was made two years later, it would have been a lot more successful and you could have done like the same kind of movie. Um, but he says like, yeah, I kind of wanted to prove a point that like this movie didn't need to be made. Like there's no reason, which is kind of funny when you're like, you make this incredible work of art. And you're like, there's no reason for this to exist. Like I kind of yeah. love that. I love, I love that. that. I love the just the self-awareness at every level the fact that he admits like this doesn't need to exist but it does and i'm gonna make the most of it (laughs) like those things can exist at the same time there's a line like marla bloodstone utters at dinner with billy and haviland morris is she's why how she didn't go on to have like an amazing comic career you know well she is a working actress and she does a lot of theater work and has appeared in a lot of things but how she wasn't like a leading comic actress for 30 years is beyond me because a she's gorgeous and b Mm -hmm. she's hysterical in this movie she has a line at dinner with billy when she's like when art and business join forces Mm -hmm. anything can happen I fucking love that line so much. It's yeah. so seething. And it's like, while she's saying it, there's a perfectly placed Jolt Cola, like right in the middle of the screen. You're like, and you know that Jolt paid like a million bucks to have that thing like right there. So God love him. Um, she has so many great lines. I love when she's like, when she's talking about the restaurant, she's like, they skinned the fish right at the table. Um <laughs> And when when she's walking down the hallway and it's all the spider the spider web, and she's 
she's like, oh, this is new. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just, yeah, because everything's possible in that building. So, right. like, yeah, who, like, I don't know. What is this? I'm some, some new attraction, some mm-hmm. spider with All right. Yeah, she's, she's wonderful in this movie. She's just knows the assignment, knows exactly what she's in for. And to your point, Rachel, like classic, like New York over the top, like playing for the back row on stage. Um, like classic stage actress, like playing to the person in the back row of the theater so they can see everything that she's doing. She um, also just embodies that really typical, like, you know, 80s stereotype of really aggressively career driven. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you think about all like the Wall Street people in the, like, yeah. the 80s, like just that, like moving up the ladder, like, all right, this is our chance. Like this is we're moving up. We're moving up. Like the constant desire to like get ahead. Mm-hmm. Like I love how she portrays that but in a really like i don't know just a really funny casual way yeah love it um i don't often put like imd notes in my notes but this one just stood out so i had to kind of read it it's from the movie theater scene which we'll talk about in a sex i love that moment but it was inspired by a real event like number one it was um a mother came out during the screening of gremlins that Dante was at. And she said the mother was scolding the theater manager regarding the movie's inappropriate tone for children. This was based in fact, like a in K you can speak as someone that runs a festival. Like you're not responsible for the content of the movies. You're just screening what's given to you. Um, During a screening of gremlins director, Joe Dante was really was severely criticized by a mother who walked out of the theater with her daughter during the infamous kitchen massacre sequence. The daughter begged to be let back into the theater, got free from the mother and hid in the theater to watch the rest of the movie. It was me. Just, just see. Excellent. (laughs) I just picture this little kid like running around the theater and hiding and the mom chasing her around and not able because kids are, hard to catch especially in crowded (laughs) spaces like if they don't want to be caught they won't be i had to once we had an eighth grade student run out of our building like a month of my first year in my job as a school counselor and this kid was fast like if he didn't want me and i remember like in my interview in august you know the principal was like you know we move really quick here something's always going on and I remember saying to her during the interview, like, and this got me the job. I'm like, well, I run really fast for a fat kid. And she's like, you're hired. She's a start of the laugh. And she's like, that's the kind of attitude that we need here. And I so regretted saying that as I'm trying to chase after this kid running through Brockton, like going from yard to yard in Brockton. And I'm like, oh, what did I fucking get myself into? Like, yeah. So kids are just as you kids are fast. And I do think they cover themselves in some kind of oil because once you do catch them, they are very slippery. Um, anyway, again, things that would get me put on a watch list. So the theater scene, I love how this movie like breaks the fourth wall. Um And apparently, like, Warner Brothers was really concerned. They thought, like, oh, people are going to get up and leave the movie if we do this, which, number one, A, you already have their money. Um, So, like, why worry about it? But, B, it's only, like, three seconds before the grab. Like, how fast do they think people are going to be able to get out of the theater? But I just love in the middle of this movie, you not only have the screen break, but when the screen breaks, 
they're like referencing that we're watching a movie about gremlins, not just any old movie. And what does Dante throw in on the screen? He doesn't throw on Snow White. He doesn't throw on like a Warner Brothers cartoon. He throws on a nudie cutie. Like you're watching these like 19, like what would have passed for like early kind of like semi, like softcore porn, you know, where like people would just like play volleyball naked. And that's how you would go see nude people on screen, like in the middle of a kid's movie. It's brilliant. And it's just so much fun. Those gremlins, man. They're, <laughs> that's, that's, it fits like what they would do. Just, you know, just reaping chaos wherever they go. They're not, they're not going to put Snow White on the screen. <laughs> One of the things I find really, you, we, you brought this up earlier, of like the idea of did this incident that happened in, is it like Kingston Falls or something? Um, does the rest of the world know? like about what you know it was just a contained event it's like a lot it reminds me of ghostbusters which came out the same year where like in the second movie everyone hates them and it's like well th- yeah it was kind of hard to miss the state of marshmallow incident like they mm-hmm. uh, is this sort of like group <laughs> amnesia what's going on um so similar to the gremlins thing it's like how much does the world know th- th- of this incident uh, and then if there's not, the movie exists in this world, then is that movie based on the incident that happened? It has to be. Yeah. It absolutely has to be. And I think it was, you know, I think that you could maybe, especially in the 80s, keep something like that under wraps because it all happened over the course of one night and there's no internet. There's no mass media in Kingston Falls. So I do think that you would have an easier time of either a, of keeping it under wraps because you could either a convince people like Futterman, no, man, you're crazy. Like what you saw, you didn't really see. And you can kind of play on that. B, a lot of the people that would be affected like uh, Diggle, like she's dead. So she can't really go anywhere. And you could probably get like the cops to like say like, look, if you go to the rest of the world saying that little green men, you know, ransack the town, like you won't have a pot to piss in by the time we're done with you. So I think you could exert. So I do think that you could keep that. But when you're in New York, like to your point with Ghostbusters, like once you get the camera inside of there in New York, like that's broadcast, like that's you know, the early precursor to CNN is the clamp network. So that shit is everywhere at that point. The cat is out of the back. Yeah. yeah. Although now, I guess if, if uh, you were to, Gremlins were to happen now, I mean, like you would have, like Futterman, for example, if he was still around, he would be total QAnon. Like, yeah. Supporter. <laughs> Which really, oh. like, the, the, whatever charm the character had, yeah. <laughs> completely gone. <laughs> It's my right and my freedom to pour. It's my fr- it's my freedom to feed. If I want to feed my mogwai a bucket of fried chicken after midnight, that's my God-given right as an American to do so. doesn't matter if it's going to destroy the town. That's your responsibility to protect yourself. So uh, we're all going to be dead within a year. Anyway, um, and finally, like Gizmo is Rambo. Love it. Absolutely adore it. Stallone was on board. God love him. You'll never get any Stallone slander on this 
show or any other I'm ever on. He was like, yep, this is great. You know, this is like, please do this. And again, I love that. What are you lampooning? Like Gizmo, this tiny little ball of cute is like lampooning one of the greatest mass murderers in cinema history. A dude who single handedly won us the Vietnam War the second time around. John Rambo with Rambo, too. Yeah, so, I mean, my dog sitting here behind me, his name is Rambo, so, like, I'm not, yeah, (laughs) this is very special to me, this moment, and I think it's just so smart. I mean, it's, uh, you know, another subtle comment on just the obsession with pop culture and media. It's, I mean, here, the three of us are talking about this movie, so, like, it's, you know, it's the very same thing, but I love that, and of course Stallone's gonna be like, yeah, you can put my face in another movie, I'll cash that check, like, of course he is, and then, but also, I mean, so another subtle thing about bringing it back to Jerry Goldsmith, he did the score for Rambo one through three. And it was just such a smart thing because they could actually use the music from Rambo that Jerry Goldsmith composed during those scenes with Gizmo as Rambo. So it's like, why not? Like you've got this, you know, incredible composer, like just, you know, put it all together. And it's just this like little another easter egg another Mm -hmm. eight thousand little easter egg in this movie that they just take every little opportunity like that it's it's so great and it's i do i oh i was just gonna say i do i'm I'm curious like did i've never quite figured out why they're torturing gizmo (laughs) i know but why (laughs) like he gave them life (laughs) well uh Think back to your own teen years. Were you always the best to your parents? Like, No, I guess not. But is no. that really it? I didn't know if you guys had any other theories about why they're so cruel to, to little Gizmo. I don't know. I, I want, and I think uh, Brian Kuyper, who was just on for our Gremlins episode, says the novelization of Gremlins goes into, because even when the, the, when Gizmo spawns other Mogwai, um, all of them are assholes. Like none of them are like gizmo at all. Like they're super destructive. And like, the only thing that separates the gremlins from the Mogwai is they're more efficient killing machines. Like if they never became gremlins, I think spike still would have tried to like kill people. So we asked Brian, like why, you know, in the novel, like, what is it? How, what do they explain? Sky, I haven't read it yet. I'm like, well, that's great. That's the kind of research that, you know, we're looking for or lack thereof so i'm not sure why gizmo is the only good mogwai because they do seem like a really murderous rancorous bunch well i think so so mogwai is pure in the sense that he um well he's just uh, remains a a mogwai um but he's from you know china essentially or he's for Mm -hmm. at least uh, you know um a part of Chinese culture in, in this movie. Um, and I guess that the sort of um, the spawn, everything that spawns from him is sort of this like bastardization mm-hmm. of culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like, this is once you take, you know, some aspect of another culture and make it your own, this is what you get. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Maybe. And it's interesting because they do come like with a completely 
fully aware notion of like what our pop culture is like they know what television is they know christmas carols like right away they know how to use a microwave and they're only like they're less than a day old and they still they're very oh and that's the other we haven't talked about tony randall as Mm. the hyper intelligent mogwai who i just that's it's number one brilliant casting because like the voice is just you know i think if you did that now you would have like kelsey Grammer probably Mm doing that voice but tony randall there's something so urbane and suave and just like old world amazing about him that is probably my favorite gremlin because he's just just wickedly funny he probably could answer that that gremlin could answer why and he actually does he's like well we want the same thing as everything else we want culture we want our own you know we want our own kind of sense of place in the world we might stumble along the way and maybe this because to me in this movie the gremlins aren't really murderous like they're chaotic they yeah. are, um, they're violent, but they're like cartoonishly. I don't think anyone even dies in this movie except for Christopher Lee. Um, they're just much more cartoonishly violent than in the first movie where they're a lot more murderous. Like there's a body count in those movies. There's probably a higher body count in Gremlins than there is in like John Carpenter's Halloween, if I go back and look at it so it's you know here it's just more like they're there to kind of mess shit up they're like they're like the woodstock 99 of movie monsters they're just there to break shit and mess stuff up so Mm. they just want to fit in like i love how they always uh (laughs) like dress up like it's like they're cosplaying like Mm -hmm. when that one gremlin's being the secretary Mm -hmm. you know he's got her jacket on or like oh i'm a wall street broker now i'm gonna wear a a shirt (laughs) like how they always dress up as like oh i'm a waiter so i gotta Mm -hmm. like like why are they dressing up as these characters but greta gremlin is greta gremlin is your femme fatale and then like i love that her and four at the end of the movie like her and and robert picardo's forced they're like they're gonna make a go of it like he's kind of like gives that look like, eh, you know, why not? Like, what do I have? What, what do I have to lose? And I think those two crazy kids, if they can't make it work, who can? Um, well, but it's I guess the, because it's the, with Greta Gremlin, I mean, one, it's kind of a statement on performative gender. Like, so these mm-hmm. are asexual beings. Like they don't, mm-hmm. they don't need to have sex. They don't, they all have the same body parts, but this one wants to express themselves as, mm-hmm. as, as female and a provocative female, but also makes me wonder what the what um what is what is the drive between her like what is compulsing her sex drive because they don't she doesn't need to pro reproduce. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm. That's a good point. It is. It's just another just like brain. It's like a cool way to show that like these creatures are evolving, you know, and just like separates them from mm-hmm. the from the first film is that there is this diversity and yeah they're just the way that they're expressing themselves and yeah it's it's a great way to pay tribute to the original and the original characters but also like move it forward yeah right yeah it's interesting because like you're right they don't have to have sex to reproduce but that's not the only reason obviously to have sex otherwise you know We'd be even more overpopulated. Like I'd have at least two kids. Um, but it's, <laughs> but so it's, but it is interesting that she is the only one that kind of like takes on that that role, and everyone else like they're more playing like like movie characters or TV characters. Like I said, one looks like Al Capone, um, mm-hmm. which I thought was awesome. 
Um, and the last thing I had, and this is for the UK, because I was scrolling through Twitter last night and I saw your take on like what a Gremlins 3 would look like. And it was a kind of like Land of the Dead inspired take on it. So can you kind of go into your pitch for like what you would think like a follow up to this movie would look like? I thought I would watch this movie. I would yeah. watch the shit out of this movie. So I started thinking about it just because I was thinking about um, the conversations that, you know, not only Joe, but all the filmmakers that Warner Brothers probably had approached, you know, before going back to Joe and begging of like, what would a sequel look like? And, you know, obviously it was in development for so long that people struggled (laughs) to figure out how to make a sequel. So I was trying to think, well, what would how would you make a Gremlins 3? And I think it is really difficult because I don't think it's just, you can just change the location because I think what works so well in the first two films is that they um, are a conversation with each other. And so the first film, you have this sort of like 1950s, you know, ideal community, idealized community of sort of like Americana. And um, it's sort of like pure. And you have, um, it's just like post-World War II sort of utopia. And um, and so I was reading a lot about like postmodernism and like capitalism and mm-hmm. that like sort of, like began in World War Two, uh, post World War Two, and so when you take it to its further extreme and you take it to the city, um, you, you know we're now in a time of globalization and um, the sort of um, consumer culture has just erupted, and so where you have the Gremlins are sort of reflecting these pop cultural references in this small town, you go then you go to the center of cultural production where um, this is this building or what the, the business, what this biz- building represents is influencing sort of communities everywhere um, on, on how to think. And so I think that they're just such a good uh, conversation with each other that I was like, I don't, you really can't do a Gremlins 3 unless it was the next, the inevitable like the fallout of capitalism so you have like the the beginning of of late capitalism you have the climax of late capitalism and then what happens when it all bursts and to me that is um the gremlins basically colonizing america (laughs) and um creating their own you know having their own communities Whereas the the rich would be able to insulate themselves from the chaos, mm-hmm. and maybe they made some sort of a deal to buy them some time to get off planet, <laughs> while um, the lower class would be forced to accommodate the gremlins, much like Kate has to in the bar scene, and we would basically all <laughs> be like under threat and and, and catering to them, um, and just kind of seeing the uh the logical extreme of like if you took this to its logical extreme what it would look like and it would be gremlins you know um taking over every aspect of our our world um and so i don't know i don't think that movie will ever get made (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
but I would watch that movie. I love that take on it. Like an absolutely <laughs> gremlins run amok. I love that idea. Yeah, so we'll see. Yeah, we'll see where they do. I mean, I'm glad that they're doing the animated series prequel mm-hmm. because I think that, you know, there's there's something to mind there. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I as much as I would love to see another Gremlins movie, I just don't I don't think it's it can be done. Um, you know, especially it will with be. The, of course it will be, but like yeah. what you know, but just like changing the location, like okay, let's put it in Vegas or let's put it in Disney, you know, it's kind of it actually kind of has some um, parallels to like what Jurassic World series has mm-hmm. become um, in some ways, uh, which again yeah, is a Spielberg property. So I can kind of, you know, no. but I think it's just gonna, I think if they do Gremlins 3, it's going to be like what probably Warner Brothers wanted Gremlins 2 to be sort of mm-hmm. like an authentic, like soulless recreation of the first, like all most um, sort of like reboots now or sort of these um, toothless rehashes of what's come before. So it wouldn't have, I feel like it wouldn't have any real commentary. If anything, it might be more like Space Jam. Right. <laughs> sort of oh, like- I feel like it would be like the trailer would be like this super slow music and slow motion turns of like gizmo like turning towards like like very slowly like turning towards a camera and it would be very modeling and very like all of the creative like in fun like whiz bang anarchy of it would be like wiped from it it would be like super serious it would be like Zack snyder's gremlins coming to netflix or like 2023 we could deal with so, all, the, all the trauma oh of people who've come across. That would be great. Oh, that would be great. Uh, Hopefully, they if they do it, Gizmo like, dies the, tonight. Just yeah, God. I think the Chucky series would be a good template for them to look mm-hmm. at. Like, Absolutely. okay, if you're gonna do this, like, you know, it's a little CGI, it's a little practical, but it also like has a lot of the original people involved, and mm-hmm. you know, doesn't take itself too seriously, but also being executed pretty well for the the format so mm-hmm. i think there's a argument now that i've seen the chucky series it's like okay they could do it's very similar i think in tone in a lot of ways sometimes mm-hmm. yeah so it's like there's there's a way to do it but it would it, i mean it's not ever going to compare to the you know the first two no. i would say right. although with the chucky speaking of the chucky series i the chucky series is becoming my favorite entry in all of oh, them it, like yeah, so, I've, I've heard that from other people too. So. Yeah, like it's definitely like in the top three, two, like three for me right now. It's like one, two, and two is my favorite one. Mm-hmm. Then and then you know, but it could. I haven't seen the last episode. If they land it, it could be my favorite. Yeah, and they both, it's... both Gremlins and Chucky, have like little little kicking legs that are so yeah. cute. <laughs> and enough t- and enough time has passed. I think that it's like if they do something, like hopefully you know with the right people it's they'll be aware of it it won't just be a cash grab because so much time has elapsed that they're like okay if we're gonna do this let's do this right this is me being really optimistic and hoping that they yeah they use chucky as a template to be like this is there is a way to do this so let's make sure we do it right so hopefully fingers crossed i, I know and I they do don't think and the, the thing with chucky is they don't get too bogged down with trying to rationalize it or trying to make it make yeah. sense which Joe Dante knew there was no making sense of this. So no, right. don't think about it. it. Same with yeah. Chucky. Like watching the new Chucky series, I'm like, oh my God, they're just like body swapping everywhere. Like, mm-hmm. 
I haven't don't seen worry, worry it's, I haven't seen the new Chucky yet, so I need to. It's only on Sci-Fi right now, right? Like it's not streaming anywhere, so I will you can wait. Stream till it through is. Hulu, but it is like oh. an add-on. Yeah, then I can watch it. I did not realize that. All right, so I well, know you, what I'm you doing. You have to get the, the Sci-Fi week. add-on. But There's like a pay, oh, pay yeah. but I I pay the season one. I got a season pass for like ten bucks, and it's for all the seasons. Oh, that's cheap enough. I'll do that. Yeah, then. perfect. Perfect. So I'm probably going to need to own that when we cover Child's Play next year. Anyway, so all right. Spoiler alert, we're covering Child's Play next year Yay. pretty early on. <laughs> um, all right. I think we have covered this movie really well. Is there any... The, my only closing thought is like, whoever did that to Phoebe Kate's hair needs to be launched into the sun. <laughs> um, I don't know what she did to piss off hair and makeup, but my God, that wasn't, it was not kind. It was a hate crime as far as I'm concerned, but mm-hmm. uh, well, any other final thoughts? Because Phoebe Kate's, I just, I, I'm sure she's living a happy, fulfilling mm-hmm. life. Uh, and I, I, I wish if that is the case, I wish, continued mm-hmm. <laughs> joy but i just miss her so yeah. so much she's yeah. such a treasure such a just a, an amazing presence on screen absolutely um and you know she avoids like where billy is just kind of this like wet sock like this kind yes. of like nothing character she does um add a lot of character she brings a lot to the character of kate she also has comedic chops. Um, yeah. You know, I think that uh, she, she for me, is like, is like the heart of the human characters mm-hmm. um, and, she, and also the most realistic because she, she's also like, what the fuck? Like, enough with these gremlins. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love it when, when, when Billy's like, I need you to bring Gizmo home. She's like, fuck no. She's like, I don't want to do that. She's like, what are you, you know, we're... Yeah, it's like, what's wrong with you, sir? Uh, and he's, like, he's also it... deeply traumatized. Talk yes. about like a David Gordon Green. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah, a oh, it man. would put her at the front and center. Her, when they when they parody the Christmas speech here, like, don't talk to me about Lincoln's birthday. Yeah. And, and she goes into it. She starts launching into it. And we don't have time for this. Like, that's brilliant. Um, I noticed something watching Gremlins on thanksgiving night when she starts going into that speech and she starts with like you know my dad died on christmas eve like billy is like not paying attention at all he's like (laughs) picking up the phone he's checking things out like he is not he's not listening to her at all like he is such a shitty boyfriend like dude you're the worst like when she's like i hate you know i don't like christmas the suicide rates go up and blah blah it's like it's like oh you hate christmas it's like have you not heard a word that she said in the past like five minutes, dude? Like, I'd rather hang I out. With Dan- I'd rather hang out with Daniel Clamp than Billy Peltzer. Absolutely. So too. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. So thank you so much for this talk on Gremlins too. This was a really fun episode. So we want to ask, like, Kay, you just wrapped up your fifth year of the Salem Horror Film Fast, taking a welcome break when do you get back to it when does 2022 start for you ah so now is sort of like in between i'm actually still winding down the fest because i do the accounting and Mm -hmm. all the other stuff so um you know i just doing it at a slower pace (laughs) for my own sanity Mm -hmm. but um uh but 22 is in the works we have some changes that we'll be announcing 
um, but I can't. It's still in flux. So I hope okay. to have um, the full vision of what 22 is going to look like solidified by the end, and ready to announce by the end of this year. Excellent. What is it like, because for folks that don't know, like Salem, you know, people associate Salem with witches and Halloween. But what I think people don't know if you're not from this area, there's no easy way to get in and out of Salem. It is literally a one lane road in and out route 114. What is it like running an event that's as large as Salem Horror is in that town during peak Halloween season? It sounds absolutely horrifying and awful, and yet you do it every year, and it gets bigger and better, and I don't think I've heard anyone aside from Republicans speak an ill word of the fest. Mm-hmm. So what consider, is it like? Which I consider an, an endorsement. Badge of honor. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's really difficult. Um, so, you know, obviously Salem's on everyone's bucket list and it's, you know, one of the few cities in the world that actually has a reputation of being a Halloween town. Mm-hmm. Um, and so of course everyone wants to be in Salem in October and, you know, we are very grateful and have been able to, um, sort of accelerate our growth because of Mm -hmm. that you know i'd love to take all credit for for you know um for salem horror fest but we were just you know it's just the right thing in the right Mm -hmm. town that people are gonna want um but it's extremely challenging um so everyone in the area um you know within like 50 miles or even 100 miles who would you know would typically do like day trip kind of thing they're not coming to Salem mm-hmm. in October. They're like, they avoid it like the plague. And so there's a ton of people that I know are like, I'd love to come <laughs> to Salem or Fest, but it's in October. And then, of course, people who are watching from afar who want to come, there's actually such a low hotel inventory yeah. um, rate. There's just a few small boutique hotels. Um, so the rooms sell out very fast. So um, all of that is, is really challenging, but you know, we have, the city is a lot smaller than its reputation. So mm-hmm. we, we uh, Salem gets 1 million visitors every year and half of that is in October alone. Yeah. So 500,000 people come to Salem. The population of Salem is 50,000. So it's like, a gremlin's infestation. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's a chaos. It's just absolute chaos. Just, you know, with many of the streets are closed. The everything's you know packed. Um, so it is very challenging. So without giving away too much, some of the um, changes and uh, that will be announced for next year will uh, hopefully address that. Excellent. I've always, I've always no, I'm not going to say anymore. Okay, we'll get you next. When we have you on next, we will talk about those changes. Excellent. We'll just tease it a little bit. Um, what about the decision? Like, I think I, I remember in 2020 at the start of lockdown, and the last thing I did before COVID, I bought a ticket to the Chattanooga Film Fest. I booked my room, bought my ticket, and then we went into lockdown, and they were the first folks to do like a fully virtual fest and i remember at the time being super grateful for that because it was a way for us as a community to talk to one another and share movies and like 
at a moment where I think everybody was at peak freak down, freak out about lockdown like that April. Mm-hmm. And I know like Telluride Horror, which I'm one of the hosts of and kind of a programmer, although nothing I ever choose gets actually selected. And it's kind of a running joke in the <laughs> with the other programmers. Um the one time I picked something like it was last second, I brought the movie with me. We had an open slot and I told the audience, like, if you don't like the movie, you can punch me in the face after. And after the movie from across the street, I hear, yo, you're going to get punched. So that was awesome. Um, But um, we did fully virtual last year. And I know this year we were all in person. You made the choice this year to kind of do the, both like you did a full in-person festival and then just as large of like a virtual fest once the main fest wrapped up what was the impetus behind like doing kind of the hybrid model for that um i'm insane okay (laughs) so insanity excellent no i mean i do think so we did it um in 2020 we did it 100% virtual and i attended the chattanooga virtual fest Mm -hmm. too and you know learned a lot from that experience and and enjoyed it quite a bit as well I, i had a really good experience with that um and the same thing having that sort of sense of community online being able to watch the movies was really i had a really fun time um but um you know in addition to the challenges of the low room inventory in salem um in terms of availability it's also salem's not very accessible um if you have any sort of um you know handicap or oh um (laughs) so like you know it's it's extremely old city so everything's cobblestones and um the buildings aren't um many of the buildings aren't handicap accessible so it's not a super accommodating city mm-hmm. um and so i just i i think that the virtual component um you know is really important um to be able to allow more people to participate and see these films um who can't either through accessibility issues or financial issues or scheduling issues you now salem um is also very expensive um if you are coming from like california for example you gotta and you're a couple you're paying for the flights you're paying for the hotels in october the hotels are like 400 bucks a night um and you're paying then there's the food and everything you want to do here or the, the cab drive so it's, it's it can be quite expensive just for a few days and you know, I didn't create this festival to appease rich people. Like that's not yeah. why I did it. So I want the festival to be as accessible as possible. And um, you know, doing the virtual in addition to the live, you know, was important to be able to offer that, um, uh, you know, in general, but also um, can, taking into account everyone's apprehension and mm-hmm. justified apprehension with COVID. You know, I mean, knowing that a lot of people will not feel comfortable coming. And we took it very seriously and it did go smoothly. Um, so it was a good, it was a good learning experience. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, we really excited to see what happens next year with the fest. I mean, to see how much that has grown in such a short period of time and how, the horror community has embraced it and look forward to it. You know, you've got, you've built, 
you and your team have built something incredible um, that you should be super proud of. And like, it's just going to get better. So that's, you know, I was really excited to like help, like look at some of the short films and see which I love short movies this past summer was so grateful to take a part of that. And I can't wait to see what you come up with in the coming years as well. Thank um, you. So thank you so much. And Rachel for yourself, like you've got your bylines at a gazillion places. You're working with the <laughs> losers club, uh, which is such a great podcast. Like it really is the best. There's a lot of very good Stephen King podcasts, but like the, what you've all built with the losers club with Mike and Jen and Randall there, something really special. Like, what do you have coming up? Like, what are you working on? Oh, man. Lots of interviews, um, as always. One of mm-hmm. the things I've, one of my favorite things in life is interviewing composers and really talking mm-hmm. and digging into the craft of, you know, film score composition. And mm-hmm. um, so I'm still doing, sorry, my dog is like really excited and wants to That's see you okay. guys. Um, so I've got, <laughs> I've got some interviews coming up. So I've got Simon Boswell, who did. Mm. Uh, Demons 2, Santa Sangre, and Lord of, you know, Lord of Illusions, 100 million movies. Uh, mm-hmm. I got an interview with him coming out on Daily Grindhouse. I've got one with uh, Joseph LaDuca, who just did the new Chucky series, yep. and all the Evil Dead films. Uh, that'll be on Bolingo. And then um, I've also got my monthly column on Dread Central, which is called Terror on the Turntable, which mm-hmm. is just where I get to really dive deep into a various horror film score and just talk about it and gush about it. So yeah, that happens every month on Dread Central. Excellent. And where can we find both of you on the socials if they want to follow more of your work or learn more about the fest? Kay, where can they find you? Uh, So I'm at Video Coven. Um, That's my personal account. And then Mm -hmm. Salem Horror Fest for Twitter. Excellent. And Rachel, how about yourself? I'm on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find me at Vinyl Girl, G-R-R-R-L. Excellent. Excellent. G-R-R-R-L or G-R-R-L? Three R's. Girl. Three R's. Okay. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. We know we're going to have you both on again. Um, and for listeners, like that is going to wrap up our take on the Gremlin series, a nice kind of two-film franchise for the month of December. Um, please, wherever you're getting your podcast, do us a favor. Like we really could use like your ratings, reviews, and subscriptions. So hit that subscribe button. So you get us every time we post a new show, but if you could leave us a five-star rating and a quick review, that goes like a super long way to finding us new listeners. Um, so wherever you're getting your podcast, please do that. Um, And when we come back in January, I kind of mentioned before, there's going to be like a slight restructuring of what we're going to do in that we're going to have like a regular gang of kind of co-hosts that will pop in and out. I've had a few people that have said like they're really interested uh, that I've worked with before. Um, So we're kind of finalizing that. I'm really excited. It's going to take some pressure off of me a little bit. We're still going to continue to have guests because I love doing that. Um, and I'm just really excited. Like I said, like I've got a number in mind of like, okay, once we get to like such a number, if it ends, it ends, but we're not, it's going to be a little bit before we get there. What we're going to do in January, here's what we have planned. Uh, Scream 5 comes out January 14th and we've already covered the Scream franchise. There's no way I'm not covering Scream 5. Like I'm there day one, bells on, 
Um, like I said, I really wish that Nev Campbell's only involvement in the movie was the opening scene where they show her like reading a book and drinking a glass of wine on her porch. She gets a text from Dewey and she's like, nope, I'm good. And then like, boom, scream five titles come up and Sydney leads a happy life. Um, but I am there for it. Um, since that is going to come towards the end of the month when we could post an episode, I don't want to jump into a franchise and then jump out of it. So we're going to go back and we are going to redo the first episode we ever did. We are going to revisit Scream. Um, just the first movie. I'm sure we'll touch on the sequels a little bit. Um, if you listen to our first episode, and a lot of you have, it's in our top three for downloads. I whisper a lot in that episode because I had to re-record all of my dialogue because I didn't actually record myself when we did that episode. So I we're going to redo that with some special guests and have a lot of fun with it. We'll talk about what we hope Scream 5 will be. Uh, and then after that, we are going to jump into the Child's Play franchise. I think we announced that last episode. So, Kay, I know you're going to want to come on for that. I think we have a couple other guests already lined up. Um, so that'll take us through like the first quarter of the year. So I'm excited to talk about that series because it means a lot to a lot of people. Uh, to me, it's just a really fun series. And I am just going to say absolutely disgusting filthy things of what i would love for miss jennifer tilly to do to me um it would be embarrassing yeah i mean who would oh god she's so beautiful so beautiful and she knows just how alluring she's a goddess and oh anyway i before i i will oh i i you know what sold i will buy the season past tonight so uh before uh my wife overhears any of the things that i would like her to do to me then i will sign off for this week's episode thank you listeners we hope you've enjoyed it uh this has been fun to talk about and we will be back really soon with scream thank you